for our sermon. It can be found in your bulletin. This is Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in all this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, they will. But if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. Well, in this story, you have two different men. One who is known by many people and the other who is known by God. The rich man who has no name and the poor man who we know his name, that of Lazarus. I guess you could read this passage and we could find a simple formula about how to live life. If you live life well, you end up in hell. But if you suffer pain, you're going to enjoy great gain. And so it's a simplistic understanding of how life is to be. Don't enjoy life too much. Don't live it well because who knows where you're going to end up. But rather it is the poor and so forth, the suffering, in the end, everything will balance out. But we have to read this passage in its larger context, don't we? We've been preaching through the whole book of Luke, and it was only in the passage before that Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. You can only be devoted to one. You can't serve God and money. And indeed, Jesus also said that to be faithful with handling earthly wealth because if you're not faithful with that, who will entrust you with heavenly riches? Much of this invective was directed directly toward the Pharisees who, the scriptures say, loved money and sneered and rejected Jesus' comments. So no, there's a bigger picture here of what's going on. We need to take a look at these men and understand how they ended up in the place where they ended up so that we can make sure that we don't end up, uh, we end up in the right place. Well, let's take a look at this rich man. Let's learn a little bit more about him. Let's not look at him so simplistically. We see that he's a rich man who is clothed in purple linen, 
purple, excuse me, purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. So we see that he's a well-dressed man. Indeed, purple was a very expensive uh, dye, and to wear purple clothing, it really was the color of kings. And so this man who is clothed in purple, it would seem continuously, he wore the garb of a king, though he's not uh, called a king, and he wears fine linen. And the Greek specifically says it's fine linen undergarments. We discover that even his underwear was opulent. He was wearing fine linen. His skin was needed the, uh, uh, you know, was subject to chafing. He needed to wear fine clothes. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Now keep in mind that, you know, even the richest of the rich, you know, did not eat this way. Perhaps they ate well, but the language is actually that of a feast. It seems that every time he came to table, there was feasting. The courses continuously came out. Not just on Monday or Tuesday, but Wednesday and Thursday. Indeed, even on Sunday. We see a picture of the servants, that would mean, never got a chance to rest either. Everything is focused on this man's gluttony. I mean, really, who needs to feast every day? And yet this man feasted every day. He lived in a fine house. It was a gated estate. I don't know if you've ever been to one. The gates are uh, likened to palatial gates. It's not like the little, you know, fence. But rather, this man lives in a fine estate. Living in the lap of luxury, so to speak. That's this man, the picture that we have of him. But there is another man in verse 20. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And so the picture in the scripture here, we see an extreme juxtaposition. One who lived in extreme wealth and one who lived in extreme poverty. Indeed, he was laid at Lazarus' gate. The Greek, the accurate translation would literally be he was sprawled at his gate. Why would he be sprawled or laid there at Lazarus' gate? Well, he was unable to work, obviously, and he was unable to walk. He had to be placed somewhere. He had extreme sores, whether they be bed sores because he could not move or sores from malnutrition. The answer is probably both. And he's laid at the gate of Lazarus. Now, we have to ask the question, why lay him at Lazarus' gate? Well, we need to understand that in this time, there was no social security. There was no uh, net, if you will, for the poorest of the poor. And so the people, when they laid him, they decided that they would lay him at a place where someone could possibly help him. So we see in the book of Acts, sometimes being laid at the temple gate because people would be coming in. Well, Lazarus was someone who had the ability who had enough uh, wealth, enough leftovers, so to speak, that Lazarus should be able to eat and be cared for. We need to understand that there was this maxim, these, uh, you know, in the scriptures, there was an admonition to care for the poor. But very few people had much left over. The people, or Lazarus, 
reasoned, I guess, that because this man had so much and was an Israelite, that this was the best opportunity for him to be cared for. This was the best shot that he had, so to speak. Lazarus is not a two-dimensional character. He had desires and wants, hopes. Verse 21, he desired to be fed not with what was on the rich man's table even, but rather what fell from the rich man's table. In other words, Lazarus was so low that even the scraps from the rich man's table were what he desired. But apparently this desire never came to fruition. The translation, the ESV that you have, moreover, it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. But the earliest translations can actually be translated this way. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, but the dogs came and licked his sores. Now these dogs, probably not wild dogs, rather but the dogs came. What dogs are we talking about? We're talking about Lazarus's dogs. You see, it's Lazarus's dogs who have eaten the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. The rich man, instead of sending food, sends dogs. And the dogs care, but the rich man apparently does not. It's the dogs that are well fed, but Lazarus goes hungry. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There is a sense of vindication here. That is this story end with blackness and darkness? No, rather the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. If you have an older translation of the Bible, you might have the words Abraham's bosom. You don't quite understand what that means until we understand how Israelites feasted. If you remember several months ago, our, I talked about when there was a feast that they would recline on their side and they would eat. They would lean on one side on their elbow like at a couch and they would eat and they would put their hand into the bowl. And if you remember John, who was at Jesus' side at the Last, uh, bang, uh, the last Supper, uh, wanted to talk to Jesus. And so what did he do? He simply reclined on his Jesus' bosom. He leaned back into Jesus' bosom. And so here is Abraham. And the poor man, Lazarus, is at a feast in the kingdom of God. Right next to Abraham. Leaning on Abraham's bosom. He's at the greatest feast of all. The feast in the kingdom of God. And next to him is one of the most important people, Father Abraham. The poor man is vindicated all in the end. Uh, works out for him. But what about the rich man? The rich man also died and was buried. But was not at Abraham's bosom, no was in Hades and being in torment lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It's very interesting that this rich man looks up and he sees Lazarus. Indeed, he can identify Lazarus. Indeed, he knows Lazarus' name. 
Now we have to ask the question, how does he know Lazarus' name? It's because he walked by him every day. See, he can't even argue ignorance. I never saw this man. I sort of assigned this sort of thing to my servants. No, no, he knew. He simply didn't do anything about it. And so in a poetic sort of justice, the man who feasted every day is not invited to the feast. And yet the man who longed to feast and never had one is at the feast of the kingdom of God. It's very interesting that the word Lazarus, if you were to translate it, literally means the one that God helps. We have to ask the question, what went wrong here? Why is it that this rich man does not end up at the feast? It's because he really didn't understand what the law was all about. Remember the person that comes to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. But he didn't stop, did he? As everyone was saying, Ah, yes, that's right. He said, This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, these two are inexorably tied together. They stand and fall together. This second commandment, as the first, was also in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you shall love the neighbor, uh, your neighbor as yourself, he goes on to explain how you do that in Leviticus 19. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen graveyards of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. He says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor. You shall not withhold his wages. I am the Lord. In other words, the reason you shall do these things is because I am the Lord. To love them is to love me. See, it's the way that the man dealt with the second commandment that ultimately showed what he thought of the first. See, the ultimate sin was not against stepping over Zacchaeus, treating him as he was invisible, neglecting him. The ultimate sin was against God. Because to break all of the other commandments, particularly the commandments against loving our neighbor, is ultimately to break the first. This was the condemnation against the rich man. That he had no love for anyone else but himself. I don't know if you've started watching the Olympics. We got to see the opening ceremony. Our dear friends, the Harcells, are in town. And it's neat watching and them, but not only learning their stories. It's a really neat story of one of the Olympians. Her name is Yusra Madini, Mardini. And she's part of this team of refugee Olympic athletes. What a lot of people don't know is just weeks before this woman came to participate, she was leaving her country. And Yusra and her sister 
are responsible for helping to save the lives of about 20 people after jumping off their sinking boat in the Aegean Sea and pushing this boat to land. Yusra will compete in the 100 meter, in fact, she's already competed in the 100 meter butterfly. Uh, and she was a talented swimmer in war-torn Damascus, professionally backed by the Syrian Olympic Committee. But as unrest continued and escalated, she would often find herself training in pools where the roof had been blown open by the bombings. Damascus became increasingly unstable and she was forced to flee, leaving with her sister through Lebanon and Turkey before trying to reach Greece. Well, 30 minutes after setting off uh, from Turkey, the motor on the boat that she was in, which was designed for six people but was carrying 20, began to fail. Most of those on the board, on board of the boat could not swim. And so Mardini, having no other alternative, with herself and two other strong swimmers, jumped into the sea and swam for three hours in open water to stop their dinghy from capsizing. Said Yusra, we were the only four who knew how to swim. I had one hand with the rope attached to the boat as I moved my two legs and one arm. It was three and a half hours in cold water. Your body is almost like done. I don't know if I can describe it. I had to smile and be funny even though I felt like dying because there were six-year-old boys in the boat and I didn't want them to think we were going to die. I remember that without swimming, I would never be alive. Maybe because of the story of this boat, it's a positive memory for me. You know, the thing about Yusra Mardini is she didn't need the boat. She was a world-class swimmer, an Olympic swimmer. She actually won her heat, by the way. She didn't end up qualifying for the final because she didn't make the time. But she could have gone on. But for some reason, she thought of the six-year-olds and those who could not swim. And she attached herself to the boat. And she pulled she didn't need him. She could have been in it for herself, but she had a bigger vision. The truth of the matter is, my friends, that we're all in the boat. The Pharisees, the religious people, they believed in the first commandment, to be sure. Maybe we do as well. I hope we do. But the second follows the first. See, what Jesus is saying is you can't be a Christian and not love people. And so God has given to each of us a heart monitor. Got this Apple Watch here. It's got a heart monitor on it. We actually have a heart monitor. His name is Lazarus. Or I don't know who his or her name is for you. It's the person near us the person at our gate. It's the person who's hurting. Notice, the rich man didn't need to go out to the ends of the earth to find someone in need to prove to the world that he loved God. No, they just sort of collided with him. And in the same way, it's the person that we collide with. It's the person we can't help seeing. And God has given us this heart monitor so that we can answer the question, 
Yes, I must love God. Look how I live today. And so Jesus is telling us that a life lived for self alone is not a life lived for Christ. Jesus doesn't condemn wealth in this passage. He doesn't condemn enjoying good things. But he condemns a life lived for the first commandment to the utter neglect of the second. Well, you may be saying to me, Carlos, you're, you're being a bit harsh here. This was a mistake. What about the rest of his life? I mean, maybe this was simply the one person that he missed over. Are we be, to be condemned for simply one person? Are we to be perfect? We know that the scriptures tell us that if anyone says without, that he's without sin, he's a liar. No, we need grace. We are broken people. No, we discover that it's in hell that his true colors are revealed. See, the conduct afterwards when he discovers the truth of everything should prove how, that this is a mistake, if it's a mistake. But notice how Lazarus behaves in hell. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguish in this flame. I find it very interesting that he doesn't even talk to Lazarus here. I mean, shouldn't he come to his senses if any place in hell? Shouldn't the first response of his heart be remorse, repentance, sorrow? I deserve to be here. This is my rightful place. I'm sorry for how I lived. Lazarus, I'm sorry for how I treated you, how I neglected you. No, in fact, he ignores him. As he ignored him then, he ignores him now. Rather, he calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham. He appeals to him on the basis of his ethnicity as an Israelite. Send Lazarus. Make him my errand boy. Because I am hurting in other words, what I was unwilling to do for him in that life, make him do it for me in this life. He's still clinging to his self-importance. His heart is not of repentance, but cries only for relief. Abraham responds, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Let's not be simplistic. He's not simply saying, look, you had good things, now you get bad. Rather, he's reminding him of what he did with his good things. See, there's a sense of poetic justice here. His crimes go before him. Our crimes do have to be paid for by ourselves or for someone else. Abraham is reminding him. Besides, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed. Those who want to go from here to there cannot. There's no going back. There's no turning back at this point. Not that you would, Abraham. Abraham continues. He answered, Then I beg you, fathers, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. 
Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. He still does not address Lazarus. He doesn't dignify with him with importance. If Lazarus will not be my errand boy, at least make him my messenger boy. See, he's concerned, to be sure. But he's concerned with his own. Not the Lazaruses of the world, but rather his agenda. There still is no repentance. See, my friend, hell will be filled with people who have no remorse. Perhaps pain, but no remorse or repentance. And Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. But no, Father, he says, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Abram says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, what Abraham is saying to the rich man, and what he's saying to us today, what he's saying to the world, is that we already have sufficient witness. The message has already been given. You had it, rich man. You went to the synagogue every Sunday like a reputable Israelite. But you weren't listening. You were thinking about the feast. You were thinking about your life. But you weren't thinking about me. But Father Abraham, if someone comes from the dead, if that happens, they will repent. Find it ironic that Jesus did raise a man from the dead, didn't he? Whose name coincidentally happened to be Lazarus. Remember in John 11? Mary and Martha's brother? Jesus waits four days. It's not even a quick one, is it? Remove the stone. And we discover that that actually was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. That the Jewish leadership at that time, from that time on, said, we've got to get rid of this man. Neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. The rich man said, I, I didn't have sufficient witness. And many will say the same. But God will say, yes, you did. You refused to listen and believe. I was driving my Toyota Camry a couple of uh, weeks ago and the nefarious check engine light came on. See, heretofore, my Camry has been bulletproof. And so I looked at it in dis disbelief. How can it be at a meager 120,000 miles, a check engine light comes on? Has to be something small, you know, like a little clog in the air filter or whatever. I don't know. But this can't stop me from my errands. So I continued on. But lo and behold, I could not believe it when my car shut down at Town Bank. And despite my poking and prodding, it refused to start again. Ultimately, it was an alternator problem, which was still 400 bucks. Could have been a lot worse. The point being that the sign was right in front of me. It was glaring, it was in my vision. But I ignored it. 
I'll deal with it later. I refuse to look at it. I'll get to it. But at that point in that parking lot, it was too late. See, the, the time for repentance is not in hell. If you didn't repent now, you're not going to repent then. The time for getting right with God is now. And so, my friends, we must listen to the witness of the Scripture. If they had Moses and the prophets, we also have the Gospels and Paul. So we must listen to the Gospels. Is not the story of the Gospel, this parable made right? We are the character in this story, but we are not the rich man. We're the beggar. And it's Jesus who is the rich man. Clothed in purple, the color of royalty. The one who chairs and sits at the greatest seat in the feast of the kingdom of God. The one who, if anyone deserves all glory and honor and praise and opulence, the best of the universe, it would be him. We deserved our condition. I don't know about Lazarus's heart. I don't know anything about that. The story's not really about that. But I do know if anyone deserves to be outside the palace gates, it's me. If anyone deserves damnation, it's me. How about you? But unlike the rich man, Jesus stepped away from the banquet table, took off his napkin. He came outside the city gates, crucified on a cross. He who became, uh, was rich became poor. He fed us through dying for us. He clothed us with salvation and righteousness. And He brings us to His banqueting table and His banner over us is love. Jesus is the parable made right. And he says, as I have done for you, do for others. The gospel is the continued blinking light. You have everything. And my love for you never runs out. Go and be my hands and feet. This kind of love can't help but change our hearts to a degree where our hearts reach out to others. And so we must listen. We must repent. We must love God and we must love others. I have no formula for you. No, go help two people a day. Do your good duty, Boy Scout. God will lead you to who He's calling to you to care for. It's going to be inconvenient, by the way. It's going to be messy. Requires stepping away from the banqueting table. But it's there that we come face to face with the person of Jesus Christ. And in loving others, we discover how great His love for us was for us. I want to touch on Lazarus one final point. And that's simply this. That God hears you may identify more with Lazarus than the rich man. You may feel lost in life, forgotten, 
unable to get up? But who is the one that God helps? The one who has it all together? The rich man, the highly esteemed? Or in the end, the one that everyone forgot? This life is not the end. In the end, it was Lazarus that God vindicated. He never forgets. And God has not forgotten you. Even if all others do, God helps. So if you're feeling like a Lazarus, fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on the hope of heaven. Wait patiently. His love for us never fails. And in the end, we will see it in all its fullness. And we will know that a life lived in dependence and hope in Jesus Christ was worth it. Our love for others will ultimately reveal our love for Christ. And so let us rest in his love, a bunch of Lazaruses. And let us love one another, even the rich men. For this was God's plan for us. And this is our plan, the plan that he gives for us to do to others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you stepped outside the city gates and died a gruesome death on a cross that you might draw us to yourself, heal us, and bring us to your banqueting table. Lord, let the love that you have for us work its way so deeply into our life that we cannot help but have love and compassion and kindness and patience for those around us. For we are your hands and feet. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.